Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. This week we're talking to Debbie Young about writing cosy mysteries. Debbie is the author of nine novels across two series, seven in the Sophie Sayers Village Mysteries and two in the Staff Room at St. Bride series, currently writing a third. She writes a blend of cosy mystery and romantic comedy and is a course tutor in self-publishing for Jericho Writers and a UK ambassador for the Alliance of Independent Authors, for whom she has also written how-to books for authors. She runs the Hawkesbury Upton Literature Festival in the Cotswold, which she founded in 2015. Two of her novels have been shortlisted for the Book Brunch Selfies Award, given for the best independently published fiction in the UK for 2020 and 2021. I sat down with her to talk about cosy mysteries, how they differ from other crime genres, and what her writing process is like. A big thank you to our patrons for all your support. We couldn't do this without you. As a patron, you get early access to episode, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the hard work that goes into creating these episodes to inspire and motivate you. And when we hit 15 patrons, we'll be setting up a Discord where you can connect with other writers, get daily accountability. Whoa, whoa, daily accountability. Yeah, daily accountability. We've got to get that dopamine fix in. Uh, Millie's off. She doesn't want to sit with me anymore. As well. She's just so shocked. That people are going to be able to get daily accountability. She's off to the press to report it. <laughs> as well as that daily accountability, you'll also be able to get advice, troubleshoot with other writers, network, talk about all your writing, mindset, craft, and business-related issues. It's going to be a really unique place for writers to hang out and support each other. That sounds amazing. Where can our writers go to find out more? To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. I do see there, Christina, that happens to be a very nice t-shirt you're wearing. Well, thank you. What does it say on it? It says, if we can just get it in shot for people who are actually watching, it says one chapter at a time and I didn't nearly fall off my chair then. Much. Definitely did and I kind of wish you had, that would have been hilarious. That's really mean. Yes, this is from our new merch, along with a very nice notebook here that says the same thing. <laughs> I have a feeling that might be reversed on the camera, but anyway... And I happen to have a lovely mug here that reads Inspiration is Everywhere that just so happens to also be from the same merch store. Mm. I do quite like that mug. I'm slightly jealous of it. I wish I'd bought that as well now. I actually think the design around it looks really cool. Well, thank I'm you. I'm just saying that. But the way you, I think, <laughs> obviously you designed them because you are very good at these kind of things. But the, the way it wraps around, I think, just looks really fancy. And lovely, and I have used it every day since it arrived. So, oh, really? Yeah, I keep washing it so I can use it again in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I love that when you've got that kind of favorite mug and like using it first thing in the morning just makes you happy. It does. I know it. That's how I'm, I feel about our merch right now. Ooh. As cheesy as it sounds. No, I really like it because like I have the the stuff that says one chapter at a time because it reminds me to slow the fuck down. 
it is okay to pace yourself like i am going through and making the proofreading changes for the um the necromancer secret and i want to rush it i want to get the book done i want to chill during my week off next week but actually taking it one chapter at a time means that i can do it better and pick up on more and not feel as stressed yeah it's not a drag race right you're not just trying to get to the end as quickly as possible actually taking your time to appreciate it all along the way gives you a better chance of doing better at it as a whole well, exactly. My readers will wait, you know, they might oh. not wait after book three, but like they, they will wait for book three and then be impatient for book four. Exactly. No. And they're the best readers to have. They are, though, actually sp- saying that some people are impatient for book three. So, but they'll still rather I, I pace myself. I do have nice readers, honest. <laughs> the thing is, they want you to make it good as well. They don't want anything rushed. So. Exactly. The one chapter at a time, Christina. Yes, one chapter at a time. We also have stuff that says Ellie's favorite, I'd rather be writing. And we've got inspiration. Yeah. (laughs) And inspiration is everywhere. And we've got them on white backgrounds, on black backgrounds. We've got a few different things. We've got t shirts, we've got mugs, we've got notebooks, we've got jumpers, we've got wall art, we've got hardback notebooks, we've got other things that I can't remember. So do go and check it out and grab yourself some writing motivation to stick around your house. Magnet, that's the other thing I'm excited that hasn't come yet. I know that's lame. <laughs> I have an art print here, but I, the frame hasn't come yet. So Ooh, you have to share a photo when it's ready. I think I might have to, yeah. To check out our merch and grab yours, visit writerscookbook.com forward slash. Is that the right way on camera? I'm not sure. Writerscookbook.com forward slash merch. With me today is Debbie Young. Welcome to the Writer's Mindset. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. I'm really looking forward to this chat. So for anyone who hasn't heard of you, can you just let us know who you are and what you do, please? Yes, I write feel-good fiction, uh, mostly cosy mysteries, although I am veering into sort of romantic comedy and a lot of my cosy mysteries, or all the cosy mysteries have a romantic element in them as well. So a bit of a mashup, but primarily I think people would would describe my books as as cosy mystery, Um, upbeat, cheerful, books um that will make you feel better for reading them they end, end on a happy note i'm definitely getting that cozy vibe from reading murder i'll keep getting the title wrong sorry best <laughs> murder in show i just oh i love the world building it's like i want to be in this really quaint english village um so you've mentioned a little bit about cozy mysteries already can you just tell our listeners what exactly a cozy mystery is and what differentiates it from other types of mystery Yes, absolutely. It's very important um, to differentiate your, your, as an author, to differentiate your book um, from the huge, huge genre of crime, mystery and thriller, because it's absolutely huge. And there are so many different subcategories and subsets. What's special about Cozy Mystery is that it's very lighthearted. Um, it can have serious themes as well. And I do have serious undercurrents in all of my books, but they are lighthearted, make you feel good, give you a little bit of escapism, a bit of fun, often quite have a lot of humour in mine, have a lot of humour. 
I can't write seriously for very long. <laughs> I've had some jokes and fun in there. And um, they often have eccentric characters. I have a lot of those. Um, but the, the central characters have to be lovable as well, I think. Not necessarily the murder victims <laughs> or the crime victims. They don't always have to be murders either, which I think is quite is quite nice. And that's kind of going back to um, the traditions of the golden age of crime with Agatha Christie and so forth. Agatha Christie didn't always have murders as the the central crime she had some jewel heists and all that sort of thing as well so yeah they're feel-good stories but with the same kind of uh, intellectual puzzle and the whodunit element of um, other kinds of crime as well um, that you can usually spot a cozy mystery a mile off because it has a, a light jolly cover rather than sort of the dark black bold lettering that you see in in psychological thrillers and and, and grisly crimes um, so that's best murder in shows so or light blue villagey summary effect so they the, the light heart the light cover sets you up for a light jolly story they're quite often seasonal they quite often have a very strong well they ideally they should have a strong sense of place for my first series the Sophie Sayers village mystery stories I've got them going I've got um, seven books running the course of the village year so a lot of cozy mysteries have a strong sense of place a, a sort of a theme for their setting and so you feel like you're having a little outing somewhere um, I'm just reading re just read the, the latest in a really lovely um, it's actually a police procedure it's not a cozy crime but it's a police procedural story series set in Fiji um, by B.M. Allsop uh, which has a, a splendidly named um, policeman called Joe Horseman and um, you get a lot of the setting of Fiji and the culture of Fiji in the same way that mine is set very firmly in the Cotswolds, which is where I've lived for the last 30 years. I take a lot of my inspiration and get my ideas from, from having immersed myself in real village life for the last 30 years. I'm on all sorts of committees and done all sorts of things. And I sing in the church choir. I'm a bell ringer. Um, I've run the, the village youth club and the PTA for seven years, all that sort of thing. And so I, that's the kind of experience that I'm drawing on to make my cosy mysteries really atmospheric. The cosy mysteries can be contemporary, minor contemporary, and there is also quite a lot of uh, historical cosy mysteries as well. 1920s, 1930s seems to be really popular um, for cosy mystery. Mine are set in the, in the modern world, um, although some people say, oh, well, so nice and nostalgic reading your books because villages like that don't exist really, do they? And I say, yes, they do. Come and visit where I live. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you say, they absolutely do. And that's one of the reasons that I started writing this series of books is because I like to celebrate community and the sense of community that's in my village. And my second series is set in a girls' boarding school. I worked in a girls' boarding school for 13 years and that has a similar sense of community. And again, it's, it's a really strong setting. Um, setting is all important, I think thinking cosy mysteries as, as your experience in, with reading my now that's part of the fun is the setting how do you juggle that because I, I don't know if it's just me um I really struggle with that side of things with the location and the world building I say struggle I don't like doing it I see it as a necessary evil <laughs> you know you have some parts you like some parts you don't right so I'm very consciously aware of that side of things because it's not something that comes as naturally to me as dialogue writing so I'm just curious to know like how do you bring out that sense of place in your books is it something you find natural or is it something you've really worked on over the course of your books it's something that comes quite naturally because of the way that 
I came to write the books really and that I wanted to celebrate the community and that's part of what I wanted to write about and I love all the different seasonal celebrations that go on in the, in the village so the first one was set in the village show but I also feature things that are perhaps not as obvious so for example um, in the second no in the third book there's a scene that's to do with Remembrance Day and which is very serious um, seem to have in a, in a book of this kind. So those sort of things are really front of mind for me because I'm living it all the time and going about my daily life in the village. Not only do I think, oh, that would make a good incident um, in a story, um, but I have, have neighbours who have read my books coming up to me and saying, oh, have you thought about writing something about bell ringing yet? <laughs> so I've got never any shortage of ideas for things to add into the, into the world building. So that's fine. I do consciously go back and add it it add in more sort of seasonal touches so that I'm making sure that I've got um, the right flowers out at the right time, got the right weather, because I kind of take that for granted now um, that living in a village, you know, I, I, I kind of expect people to know when snowdrops are out and, and, and when harvest is happening and that sort of thing. But for people who don't, I need to make sure that that's in there as well. <laughs> yeah, I fall into that camp. I was reading... Um, when I was reading the first few chapters, you had really vivid descriptions of some of the flowers and how pretty they looked. And I was like, oh, I recognise that. Oh, I need to look that Oh, up. that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, my mum and nan are really big in gardening and I oh. kill things. So, mm. yeah, I'm not good with plants. I try. The oh. one behind me in the pink pot was given to me um, by Ellie and it's the only thing I've kept alive other than a plant <laughs> that actually belongs to my boyfriend. So, <laughs> I must admit, I'm not great at keeping houseplants thriving. Um, so, and I've I've uh, got more into succulents because they're more unkillable. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I, I do have a nice cottage garden though, and I'm, I'm better at, at outdoor gardening. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I don't do the outdoors. I'm I'm that person who tries to hide from the outdoors. <laughs> but yeah, I've got a snake plant behind me, and I forget to water it, and it's still like tripled in size in about six months. <laughs> Perhaps you better not water it or it might take over the house. <laughs> I'm starting to worry it will. Ellie's like, oh, we're going to have to split it up so you can get it in a, in the plant pot because I can't find any cute plant pots that are the right size. Anyway, <laughs> before we go off and this becomes the gardening show, <laughs> what actually drew you to writing cosy mysteries then? Because there are other genres that have a really strong sense of place that you can cover yeah. community in, but why this specifically? I think so often authors are shaped by what they enjoyed reading in their formative years. Um, and in my teens, what I particularly enjoyed reading was Sherlock Holmes. My dad had a complete Sherlock Holmes and lovely hardback, which I just discovered one day when I was about 13 and I just read all the way through it. I then, I'm not quite sure how, I discovered Dorothy L. Sayers and the Lord Peter Wimsey books, which were contemporary when they were set, written in the 19, 1920s and 30s. But I, I just, and, and Dorothy L. Sayers has a really strong sense of place there as well and terrific themes. Um, so one of her books, for example, is set in an advertising agency. Another one is set in a bell, in, uh, around bell ringing in Norfolk. And she has a wonderful sense of place. And, um, and also Agatha Christie, I read a lot of when I was a teenager. And those three authors really became my comfort re reads um and so those and i've returned to them time and time again um i read very very widely i read a lot of books i did an english literature degree which for which i had to read very widely um and all kinds of genres so it's not as if that's the only thing i've had exposure to but it's my comfort zone and it's very fun and for when i started writing um sort of treating 
treating myself as an author and, and considering myself an author and writing full time, that was the natural area that I just sort of moved towards. I've also got a strong element of romance writing. Um, there's a, a there's an ongoing um, relationship story with not only with Sophie Sayers in the Sophie Sayers series and Hector Munro the bookseller, but there are other little romances that go on relationship building within those stories as well, little subplots. And there's also in my St Bride series, there's a, um, relationship stories there as well, romantic stories. And so I'm moving, I, I really enjoy that side of things as well. And not just romantic relationships, but re- relationships between friends. So Sophie in the village, um, as, as you will discover, she develops friendships with people of all ages from um, children and teenagers to the elderly gentleman next door to her and I really like writing about about friendships as well and I think Cozy Mystery provides a good context for writing about that kind of relationship and and I think it adds depth and interest and particularly where you've got an ongoing relationship story developing through a series of books it helps keep each one different so that in the seven series seven book series of Sophie Sayers. Sophie, to begin with, she's on the rebound from a a failed relationship. Her confidence is very low. Her self-esteem is very low. And um, through the seven books, she builds her confidence and her self-esteem and a new healthy relationship. And that relationship also changes and evolves through the seven books. Having said that, I have also branched out slightly. Last summer, I suddenly suddenly had the idea and the urge to write a completely different book, standalone book called Mrs. Morris Changes Lanes, which is a sort of a second chance romantic comedy for uh, the protagonist. Um, Juliet Morris is about 50 and she is at the point where she's regretting how things might have been if she'd behaved, if she'd acted differently in her youth. And this is a romantic comedy. Um, it's got a kind of mysterious element to it as well. It's got a bit of magical realism. And um, people who have read it said, well, I wasn't quite sure where this was going to go. And, and there's sort of twist, plot twists and surprises. It's the, the second chance is not what it first seems. And I, and I really enjoyed writing that. And I think I'm, and my, I'm currently writing the third St Bride series, which will be a six book series at the moment. There is going to be an eighth book in the Sophie Sayers series. But um, after I've finished writing Scandalous and Brides, my current work in progress, I'm going to be writing another book in this kind of vein called Moon Over Mousel, another second chance scenario set in Mousel in Cornwall for um, a 20-something protagonist. Um, and again, with magical realism and with a strong sense of place, I'll be departing from the Cotswolds then to, to write about Cornwall, which is another lovely place and gives me a great excuse to have a little holiday for research. <laughs> Well, there are excuses for a holiday. I did that with Barcelona because I was writing about it. I said to my boyfriend, we need to go for a weekend to Barcelona. He's like, why? I said, because I'm writing a book about it and I need to immerse myself in it. And then my my fifth book ended up being set in Pathos, which we went to for my brother-in-law's wedding. Perfect. (laughs) Um, You mentioned then um, that you loved writing about different kinds of relationships. Yes. And I wanted to circle back to that because it's something that's really important to me as well. And I'm not sure if it's just what I grew up reading and watching because, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, it was frankly all about teenage girls stabbing each other in the back and sleeping (laughs) with each other's boyfriends. It was. They were crap friends. And I was just wondering, like, why you... you enjoy writing about the different kinds of relationships is it like because you want to set an example or is it just because you think it's important to represent there are different kinds of friendships or something completely different again it's it's something that I've 
that has come to me from living in a, a small community where um, I've had the same kind of experience that Sophie, well, not exactly the same kind of experience as Sophie's had, but, but lots, lots of similar experiences. So, for example, when I first moved here, living next door to me was a delightful old couple who were in their 80s at that point. They died um, in their 90s. 20 years ago and um I became really good friends with them and they were like sort of surrogate grandmother and grandfather to me I lost my grandparents the last one died when I was about 27 I think and the others had died in my teens and I'd really missed that kind of relationship I also ran the village youth club for a few years um and I had a my daughter is 18 and used to do the rounds of all playgroups and things like that so I've known her best friends now uh, mostly friends that she's had since she was about four so I've I've enjoyed lots of friendships with her friends as well and I I think living in the kind of community where I do where people are people will walk around in the village there's a, a village shop there's pubs there's lots of things to do in the village and so you see a lot of people of different ages and, and you and, and in different at different events in the village and um, strike up relationships with all of those people, which I don't think I ever had outside of family when I lived in London. And um, I wanted to show also that it's possible. So I'm kind of partly um, running a little bit of promotion for Cotswold Village Living <laughs> and, and the community life. And part of that is that, that is that in a small village, you're allowed to be more who you are, I think, and um, you are more likely to encounter more people of, of, of different ages and to, and to build relationships with them. And so I just want to show it's all possible, really, and to encourage people perhaps to, um, you know, to consider a bit more about the, the children who live next door to them or the old lady across the road or whatever. And I'm, I'm sounding like I'm on some moral mission here. It's not <laughs> which I guess I am a little bit, you know, I have this sort of I have this sort of zest for uh, just encouraging people to be to find things that will make them happy, really, in, in the form of relationships and where they live and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I get that. I remember when we <coughs> lived in the city centre, we didn't even know what our neighbours looked like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's too easy. And, and that's kind of expected as well. But in a village environment, everybody knows everybody else. And for some people, that comes as a shock, first of all. Um, and and some people aren't comfortable with it. You know, they can't wait to get their neck curtains up. There's a real absence of neck curtains in this village because people don't people expect expect people to know what's going on in their lives. Upside of it is that you know everything that's going on in everybody else's lives. And also, it makes it a very lovely place to live if you have a if you have a crisis, if you've got any problems. Um, then people will notice that you are not looking well or that you that, that you seem unhappy. And and if you ask for help, or even if you don't ask for help, you will you will be offered it. And and that is really lovely. It is. I remember when my mum first moved to a village a couple of years ago, it took her like a month to know everyone. And it was so strange to me. And like my boyfriend grew up in a village. He hasn't lived there for, I don't know, 15 years maybe. No, slightly less. About 14 years maybe and every time we go back down there he's saying hi to people while we're out walking the dog I'm like who was that who was that how do you know every single person (laughs) 
it is it is quite uncanny for for people who haven't experienced that before. We had a, an old school friend of mine, her daughter, um, who's American. They're American. Uh, her daughter came to stay with me when she was about sixteen. She came over for for um, a couple of weeks holiday, and uh, first day she arrived, she took herself for a walk around the village, um, and she, she came back. She said, "Everybody was saying to me, hi, Marissa." <laughs> because <laughs> I knew who you were because I said to people oh I've got my, my friend's daughter coming to say Marissa from America um, and um, people knew who she was and she thought is this are they psychic <laughs> is it magic <laughs> what's your favourite part of Cozy Mysteries then other than the community side of things that we've covered what do you really enjoy about writing them I like putting in red herrings and twists and surprises sometimes I quite often I surprise myself as well because I'll plan I'll plan a particular plot and outline and then when I'm part way through writing I'm thinking no that's not what happens this is what happens or I'll have a character um Billy the old the old boy in the coffee shop in the tea room um he was originally meant to be he was only meant to be in like one scene and he just started taking over and now he's a he's a favorite character who appears very often in in all of the novels he's he's got a, a, a in some more of a main part than others but he is always there he's quite a useful foil to other things that are going on and his wry comments he's useful he's a useful vehicle for comedy as well but he just I didn't plan him he just arrived you know and and started heckling really <laughs> and, and it's those surprises that are part of the magic and it's when something um takes over that you weren't expecting and it must have been, you know, mulling away in your subconscious. So you have at some point made a decision about it, but it's when those things actually come to light and you and you realise things that you hadn't planned are starting to, to happen. And that, to me, is the most exciting part. You mentioned just then about um, outlining. So I'm curious, what's your like planning process like? How in-depth are your outlines? And do you kind of treat them as very rigid or do you see them as kind of like a guide? But if something goes off on a wild tangent, you're going to go with the tangent. Yeah, exactly that. The, I, I started with my first few books. I had um, a very, very, very outlined plan. So there might be a sentence per chapter to have the basic structure of the plot. Um, I write in short chapters. My books are relatively short. The right length of their genre are about 50 to 60,000 words. Chapters are about 1,500 words each. And each chapter is a little episode. And so that kind of plotting where you say, well, this happens in this chapter, this happens in this chapter, that is a, is a, is a perfectly fine way to plot. As I've, as I've gone forward, I've actually started plotting in a little bit more detail. So this, for example, is a page of page that I've just been writing up from, from my current book. So you can see there's a a couple of paragraphs for each chapter and then before I write that chapter and sometimes a little bit in advance I scribble on extra details you can see different notes have been added on there and um, where I think oh yes well that needs to go in there as well you know that detail, or, or that needs to change or something and then before I sit down to write each chapter and sometimes the night before I will write this is my next notebook so then here for example this is fleshing out the paragraph, sort of building on the couple of paragraphs there. So that's about a page and a half of notes. And then I sit down to write it. Um, a chapter will be about the equivalent of six pages, six or seven pages of, of that site. I'll write by hand. So it'll be about six or seven pages, which will come out to sort of 12, 14, 1500 words. My outlining will change as I go along. So originally there were going to be 25 chapters in this book. This morning I wrote chapter 29. <laughs> 
<laughs> there are about six or seven more chapters to come. So it's it's sort of embryonic. It it, it evolves as I'm as I'm writing it, and so I write by hand, and then. I type it up at the moment. My daughter, who's on her gap year, she's typing it up for me, which is wonderful. And then when I get to the, so this is the first draft of a typescript. Um, and you can see I've got scribbles all over the place where I'm changing the language, um, can, um, getting rid of superfluous words, adding in some details sometimes. Sometimes I'll add in quite a lot of detail. So um, for that page, having changed that much already, um, I then, that is a little bit to go into where the asterisk was marked. So, so it does change quite substantially at TypeScript stage. And then I'll probably go over it about another, through the whole thing, about another four or five times, making successively fewer edits until it's got to the point where it needs to be seen by somebody else. And then it goes off to my editor. How long do you spend working on a book then between like writing that first draft and then like going through the printed out version with a pen and then sending it to your editor? From starting to write, it will probably take me about a month and a half to write the first draft. And I'm writing every day. And when I'm in writing mode, I'm not writing every day of every year. But once I'm, it's kind of all or nothing. You know, I have to, once I've got going, I've got to get it out. I've got to get it done. And writing a chapter a day is doable. It's realistic. Um, I can do that in an hour or two, first thing in the morning. Um, and then I step back from it. So I've got more thinking time before I get back to write the next chapter. I wouldn't want to write any faster than that. I think I'd lose some of the process then. So that will take about six weeks to write. And then I probably spend about the same amount of time again on the editing process because it's quite laborious. Um, I do some editing on screen, but I also... Um, I'll probably do the second edit on screen, but I also find it really important to print it off because when you see it on the printed page in writing, you see it slightly fresher um, and you see things that you would have missed on screen. I also, at a, at a certain point, you can see I've printed it out as a double page spread there, um, sort of book shape, but that's not, it's not spaced. It's double spaced there for ease of editing, but a little bit further down the line, I'll, I'll, format it and print it out as it's going to look on the printed page in the book eventually because that also helps and also makes it seem more real and gives me that sense of urgency to get the damn thing finished as well because I can see it taking turning into the actual book that's going to be published eventually yeah and it helps your brain to see it differently when you do that then as well because sometimes you do need to change from looking at it on a screen see it on a tablet or on the printed yes. page and change yeah. the font and change the background and all these things kind of yeah. trick your brain into reading it as if it's something completely new yeah, and, and, and as if it's written by somebody else as well, I think. Um, so at one point also I will uh, read it on my Kindle because that always makes it feel like it's been written by somebody else. I don't know why. Um, but that's a, that's another way of, of getting a bit of distance so that you're seeing what you have written and not what you remember writing. Yeah, I often read mine on my iPad and I change the background so that it's black or grey because I don't mm. work on a black or grey screen. And then I change the font so that it's in um, a sans serif font, like the default Apple font, which I think is San Francisco. Because oh, right. I write in Palatino, so I'm immediately reading it differently. And then yeah. on the final read, I'll usually put it in something like Georgia, because then you'll kind of notice if the apostrophes point in the wrong way. Yes. And also yeah. because that's what a lot of books are printed in, so it gives you that feel for it being, you know, an actual proper book. Yes. Why am I using air quotes to say proper? It is a proper book. <laughs> 
Where do you feel a lot of authors can go wrong writing cosy mysteries then? What are the big pitfalls for the genre? I think not researching the setting enough. If it's a setting that they're not like really familiar with, that they're not living in, not researching enough so that things, details will stand out as being wrong when somebody who does know that setting reads it. I think letting a series run too long is a is a mistake. I always intended that my Sophie Sayers would be a seven book series. I've been persuaded to write an eighth. I don't think there will be a ninth, but I am diverting onto little short books. Oops, let me just show you. So I've still got Sophie Sayers alive and kicking in um, these little novelettes, which you can see are much smaller. So I can still write about her without it being becoming tedious to me or the reader. Because I think you have to, although um, you are not your reader, um, it's important to make sure that if you're bored with something, if you're finding it tedious, then the reader will be as well. I think sometimes people don't add in enough variety in a series. So I'm I'm very careful in each of my, that there'll be a completely different kind of mystery in each story, um, different setting by definition, because there's, there's seasonal elements. But in the fifth fifth book, sixth book, Murder Your Darlings, I took Sophie Sayers out of her Cotswold village. It starts and finishes in the Cotswold village, but I sent her off to Greek Island um, in the middle um, to add variety. So I think not having enough variety, because although there's a certain degree of a formula about this kind of story, you don't want things to be too formulaic. So you don't want to just keep writing the same book over and over. And I think that's sometimes where people that's a trap that's too easy to fall into, especially if your books are selling well and people are giving you really good feedback. It can be a bit scary to then digress and change to a different genre or to, to start a new series. I've, I know of a few cosy mystery authors who launch a new series every year um, to keep themselves fresh and also to give their readers something um, different and interesting to, to read. The trouble with launching a series every or, or launching too many series is that you end up with having too many plates spinning. And I think you have to keep a series in business. You have to write one, add at least one book a year to a series. But depending on the speed at which you write, um, that can be quite tricky. I'm a bit overdue with writing the third um, St Brides because life has got in the way. But that is my plan to add one per year, if not, if not more. So I think, yeah, avoiding repetition. I think I've read a few books, I'm not naming any names and pointing any fingers, but but, um, making the stories too sort of shoehorning details into a story to make the plot work. So, you know, you happen to have, you have to have a retired safe breaker living next door to the to the, to the detective or something it's it's just, you know, it stretches it stretches credibility and I think you have a certain with all mystery stories and with all murder stories in particular you have a certain suspension of disbelief because I mean as, as the old um you know with Midsummer Murder television series which of course was written in books there have been so many murders in in the community that it starts to become a little bit unbelievable, but people are willing to, 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 they love them so much that they will suspend their disbelief to go with that. But I think you have to be careful that you're not, you're not stretching your reader's imagination too far sometimes. I've read quite a lot of village mysteries and there, and there are some books I've read where they've brought so, they've had so many features in this village that it's really ceased to be a village. You know, if you have a village, you might have a couple of shops. If you've got 
a high street with 50 shops in, to me, that's not a village. Um, and um, especially when additional shops are being introduced because they happen to need to have these strange and unusual shops in the village. You know? So, so that, that I think you have to be careful that you're not, that you're not straining um, realism. One of my pet hates is where people set up, they, they run out of things for their mysteries, for their sleuth to detect. I'm talking about amateur sleuths here because mine are amateurs. So they set up their own detective agency. And you think, really? This little village is going to sustain, provide enough business to sustain a detective agency? I don't think so somehow. And, and that's just been done so they can give a new plot twist to the, to the, to the series. So I, that kind of thing irritates me a bit. But I mean, you know, not not all books please all readers and providing they're pleasing lots of readers well that's fine if that's what you want to do you know set up your amateur detective agency and I think I mean I think like the Mara Motsway ones that Alexander McCall Smith he has made it very plausible in in his books are a bit of an exception I, I have huge admiration for his prolificness and his, his versatility and his writing quality I think he's wonderful he's a definite role model but um, yeah when you find yourself doing things like that I think you should just re-examine what you're doing and be really sure that it's the right thing for, for your series and if you're having to strain a series so much to force more into it then I think that's probably time to start looking at writing a different series starting something fresh yeah you don't want something to outstay their welcome because then it can change how people feel about it and you it can be detrimental yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a shame, I think, when these things happen. And I think one of the things that you can do to change it up a little bit also is to change the length. Um, because Agatha Christie obviously wrote lots of stories about, about Poirot and Miss Marple, but some of them were short stories. And, and um, she had a, a mix of, of, of length and a mix of, of heroes, and heroes and heroines and settings and stuff. So I, mean, I think she pulled it off very well, I think. Although I've also recently discovered the, the novels that she wrote that were not mystery novels under the name of Mary Westmacott, and they are really interesting to read so so yeah if, if somebody is is um really enjoying success the cozy mystery or any kind of mystery author but hankers after doing something else i would take inspiration from what agatha christie is and, and alexander mccall smith as well he's, he's written in so many different genres so i think avoid ruts is the short answer <laughs> yeah that's part of why i segued into writing fantasy mm. because i'd written i don't know how many Chicklet and romance novels at that point I keep forgetting how many books I've published just because my memory's bad not because it's that many and I just I'd been reading so much fantasy that I felt like I was ready to go back to it if that makes sense because I yeah. wrote it like 10-15 years ago and I stopped because I hate world building which is something we're going to talk about in another podcast episode we're going to talk about how to world build when you hate world building and <laughs> it, it did really help that one of my friends absolutely adores world building so she could basically tell me what I needed to know. And so then because I've done it all up front, I don't need to think about it ever again. I can just refer back to what I've already written. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's good. That sound. It makes life a lot easier if you've got a lot of that stuff up front because I don't need to go, okay, what are the consequences of this power? What are the limitations of it? I've already yes. got it written down in a note, yes. you know? Yeah, you've got your rules set. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So going back to Cozy Mysteries and anyone wanting to write one or improve their writing skills, what resources would you recommend for someone to develop their mystery writing skills? 
I would say just read, 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 read lots and lots of different ones. There is no shortage of cosy mystery out there. Read the great ones from the Golden Age, um, Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, all the rest of it. Then there are lots and lots of contemporary ones as well. I mean, they are, yeah, a dime a dozen. There's loads out there to choose from. So there are bound to be lots out there that you can that you can try and see what works for you, what you like about them, what you don't like about them, what's already been done, what hasn't been done. Look for gaps in the market or for popular markets that you can make your own and fill in your own way. So, I mean, there are lots of, of village mysteries out there. There are lots of Cotswold village mysteries, but I don't think there are very many of them that are written by somebody who has lived in a Cotswold village for 30 years and been at the been really, really involved in the community. I mean, I've been so involved in so many things here. I've been on the village show committee. I'm on the uh, village shop committee. Um, I run a, a little literature festival in the village. And, and so... I can write with real conviction and realism and, and with with, uh, with a degree of detail that is, I think, is is one of my strengths, really. Um, so, yeah, read loads and take the plunge, really. Just keep writing, just keep trying um, and keep reading. I don't, I haven't read any, there are no craft books specific to Cozy Mystery that I have read. I don't think I've read any, actually, Um so I can't recommend a particular book that is, you know, how to write a cozy mystery. Um, there are some about, and um, I just happen not to have read them, but there are some out there if you want to find them, but just re- immersing yourself in the genre. And I think also um, watching television series, mystery series, so many of those have come from books, of course, originally. So Poirot, the Grant Chester ones, I haven't seen the television series, but I've read all the books and they're very good. And although I don't watch a lot of television, I think television is very useful for giving you a sort of a filmic um, way of thinking about setting scenes and about developing characters and, and timing as well. It's good for timing. Yeah, I find watching TV and film can be really good for understanding structure because yes. it's shorter, so it's yeah. easier to yes. analyse. Yes. And one of the first things that really helped me to understand the plot of crime and actually of the hero's journey as well was watching Castle because nearly every episode has the exact same formula for mystery. And then as you start to feel like it's getting tedious, they'll break it up with something serial from a previous season, like one of the murderers who got away and has a vendetta against the main characters. Um, And those are some of the most powerful episodes. But obviously they've got to have a balance between the two because there are 22 episodes a season in a lot of cases, not every case, but, you know, that's a lot of episodes to kind of, juggle but I think it definitely helped me to understand structure a little bit better much more than if I'd read it in a book because you know it's in 45 minutes so it's much easier for you to break down mentally because there are fewer words yeah it's very digestible because it's at a sitting and it's very seldom that you sit and read a whole book at sitting um and I think because you get the visual impact as well then it's going in a different way I'll tell you what else I like I like um I think you don't need to just read mystery stories, anything where there are revelations of character development, of plot, of setting. There are certain, there's a couple of radio comedy series, um, one called Cabin Pressure, which I think is just genius. It's masterful. It runs for about 28 episodes, I think, and it's set around uh, an airline, a a single aeroplane airline, private airline, and it's got character development, it's got a romantic plot, um, it's got twists. It's not a mystery series, um, it's a comedy series, and it's situation comedy, but it is brilliant, written by John Finnemore, who's a genius, and I absorb a lot of um, 
advice really about dialogue from from radio comedy and some of the old classics as well and think i mean things like the 40 tales porridge that kind of thing i think all of those things help you sharpen your dialogue skills as well because it makes you listen to to the dialogue that you're writing rather than just you know writing it so i i think all that kind of thing will help you hone your skills as a writer in general and as a writer of the mystery kind of plot line yeah i find I don't know if it's conscious, but a lot of what I learned about dialogue and the rhythm of language came from watching stuff and mm. also from eavesdropping, being brutally Absolutely. honest. Absolutely, yes, totally, Public transport. Yes. Public transport is the best. The amount of gold yes. I got yeah. from bus trips to uni and this tram in yeah. town. I guarantee you, no one is ever listening to your conversation unless they are a writer. <laughs> yes, a book guarantee. Doors, yes. Because uh, I talk quite loudly, Um don't really care and sometimes my friends are a bit embarrassed I'm like unless they're a writer I don't care and if they're a writer fair play to them I'm gonna be helpful but it's like because I'm in Nottinghamshire sometimes the accent and the turns of phrase it's really fascinating because I'm not from around here I'm from an hour down the road but mm. that difference in just an hour's drive yeah can be really pronounced if someone has grown yes. up around here yeah yes I, I find I find local and regional um dialects and accents really interesting as well I like to spot where someone's from but yeah absolutely public transport's the best yeah and I know some people might feel guilty Reeves dropping on public transport it's like most people don't oh I'm shameless I take notes (laughs) (laughs) I haven't quite done that but I have got on my phone I used to take notes of funny things drunken students said because drunken students do say weird stuff And some of the stuff people used to say, because we had quite late lessons. Ours was like seven till nine in some cases. Oh, wow. So you would get people going from the campus <laughs> to the city centre for a night out. And some of the stuff that people said, it was gold. And I guarantee you, they don't even remember saying it. And it's never <laughs> going to work in any of my books, but it's still funny to it's like, go back up. to. You never know. You never know. Yeah. And it's a reminder as well that people do speak in different ways and yes. the way that they use language can tell you a lot about them yes yes yeah absolutely talking about your books then and how you market them what have you found to be the best and the I hate to say worst that feels wrong the least successful marketing methods for getting the word out about your series well I think it's changing all the time and it's important to keep an eye on how things are going and to be prepared to change and to be prepared to learn along the way. I, I think the fundamental must-have is a mailing list that people can join on your website and, and to have a website that is the central part of the, the only part of the internet that you own and where you completely control it. And I'm still astonished by how many authors don't have one, uh, particularly authors who are trade published rather than indie, because indies tend to be more um, savvy about marketing and about the power of the internet. And I'm amazed. I, mean, I, I, uh, I was um, chairing a panel of um, authors recently. I do this quite often. And uh, I, went, I was trying to read up in advance about them and, and, I, and they didn't have websites. And so you're, you're dependent on the tiny amount that the publisher would have on their, on their page, on the publisher's website or whatever what anyone else is saying about them or their Amazon page or something, which is not, not great, really. So best marketing is to have your website. Um, the best paid for marketing, well, the best marketing, I always say, is to write your next book. Best time is spent writing your next book to make sure that you have a big catalogue and to build up a, a 
consistent catalogue. The things that have been most effective for me that I've paid for have been bookbub deals. The most successful was a couple of years ago when it had quite a long tail for about four four months after, and I had my best ever season. It was extraordinary. That was for that was a free first in series for when it was a five book series, I think, and that was phenomenal. But um, I think bookbub bookbubs are hard to get and are less effective. I think I I think it I. It had peaked for me at that point. So I'm reluctant to try more book bobs. Also, because I know I've there are, I think I it was free first in series, and I think I gave away 110,000 copies of the book. So there are that many out there. And so I'm kind of thinking it might not be as effective the next time around. So I veered away from book bob a little bit. Paid newsletters, if you get them right, where you know, like um free booksy, um, fussy librarian, that sort of thing can be good and they're they're more affordable, so there's less of a risk factor. But again, I, th- I think free is, I think particularly because of so many people downloading free books during lockdowns, there's an awful lot of free books out there that haven't been read. So I'm not sure how good free is going to be going forward. Um, I think Amazon advertising has sadly become pretty essential. But again, you need to be smart about it. You need to find out how to do it because you can waste lots of money on it. Um, and there are far too many people who are not doing it properly who are just wasting lots of money sadly and becoming very despondent and disappointed so again you need to to read up on that um i haven't ventured into facebook advertising i'm not sure about that so for me the jury is out i don't know to ask the least successful question that that's a good question um something that i have completely avoided because i think it would be not very helpful but that people in some people enthuse about is newsletter swaps where you join forces with umpteen people in your genre and you all agree to promote each other's books effectively in your in your newsletter and i i see i don't subscribe to that many author newsletters but i see quite a few where there's the author's newsletter and then the end there's oh and by the way i recommend these 17 books and it just seems to me i never read i stopped reading at that point because i don't want to i've subscribe to the newsletter because I want to know about that author not about what offer they're involved with so I don't think that would be successful and also I don't think it would be successful because you're encouraging but you're sending your audience people who've signed up because they want to know about you advertising for somebody else's books now if somebody reads my newsletter I want them to be thinking only about my books thank you very much <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and um so that that puzzles me a bit i mean people say oh yes i've built my mailing list hugely but are you building a quality newsletter mailing list that way is what i would ask but that's that's just me you know what works there are so many options out there that i think authors have to decide what's going to work for them and experiment not um be cautious don't take risks that you can't afford to pay for and start small and build up slowly is what i would say my current philosophy is that i just i I didn't write as many books as i as i wanted to do during the last couple of years um because of well firstly i found it difficult writing early in lockdown and then i just i got i got too many distractions i was judging prizes and doing talks and all sorts of things that, that just took me away from my writing time so now my i think my best strategy for building my career and my sales success is to just keep putting out more books of the kind that I know my existing readers like and to encourage them to to talk about them so um yeah my I prioritize writing over marketing time every day now yeah that makes sense I've found newsletter swaps can be quite hit and miss Mm. um I've had some of my most 
invested readers come from newsletter swaps oh people who good. are now on my arc team for example oh but i good. have had some people who also just have made it very clear that they just download free books and they collect them in the way that some people collect shoes yeah yeah, I think one person messaged me and I can't remember how many unread books she got. It was something in the tens of thousands. Oh, my God. And I was like, I'm just going to unsubscribe you now. <laughs> yes. Well, it's so easy to do. I mean, I do that with craft books sometimes, you know, I'll get them as ebook. Although I tend to get them as, as print if, I, if I'm definitely going to, if I know I'm going to read them and want to reread them. I tend to buy nonfiction as print but i'll occasionally get a craft book if it's on special offer for 99p or whatever and um download it to my kindle because i do read a bit on kindle and then it happened the other day i i thought oh i really need to get this particular book on amazon ads because i was just working on some ads and i went to order it and amazon said you've already ordered this book two years ago as a kindle ah of course i did so (laughs) it's too easy to do and and i mean you know if you're the kind of person who's subscribing to lots of newsletters and to book pubs and and and, um free booksy as a as a reader you're going to be filling your Kindle every day. Why wouldn't you? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention was Facebook ads. And I did use them in 2019. They're what helped my books to take off when what mm. happens in New York is free. It's still free. Um, but I find them considerably less effective now. I was spending £5 a day on my Facebook ads and making about 700% wow. ROI on it. Wow. Um, I make about... F- yeah, it's hit and miss now how much I make, but it's nowhere near that much. Like I, I, I might double ad spend. I might yeah. make, but it, it's nowhere near as good. And also, frankly, I find the audience stuff really tedious to do on Facebook ads. Yes. Whereas you think about like email newsletters and you can end up spending less, but still getting a higher ROI. And you don't need to worry about the graphics and the yeah. text and stuff because it's yeah. just the book and maybe a bit of blurb. It's a lot easier to do them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I think there's one factor that you have to tell that it's too easy to forget is that all of these things drain your creative powers a bit. You know, they're a distraction. And although it's a different kind of creativity to writing, it's still depleting your energies if you're doing that frequently. And it's... And also, it can get it can get quite um, an addiction as well. I think like Amazon ads, you know, it can get quite addictive. And so, you before you know it, you've been sitting there for like an hour and a half, and and um, you have to really be disciplined. I think to make sure that you are, and it's hard. It's hard, um, but you have to make sure that you're spending your time in the right way because there's only so many hours in the day. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, every day you have different energy levels, particularly people like me and some of our listeners who have chronic health issues. You have to be really mindful of where you're spending that time. Yes. And yes. if you're not, then you can really drain yourself mentally and you've done yes. bugger all at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about you and your writing process. Let's just talk about you for a minute then. <laughs> What's one book that changed your life? Dorothea Brand, Becoming a Writer. Um, absolute classic um, that I bought when I was 30 it says on the book plate here which uh, allowed me to it gave me permission to call myself a writer and to and to pursue that path really there's another one that was I bought when I was 18 <laughs> the art of writing made simple by Jeffrey Ash who's also a novelist I bought that from my university bookshop 
and second hand and it's got some great advice in their own writing craft like the cutting edges of prose in this chapter which I've read and recommended to so many people which teaches you to edit and be your own critic and to spot absurd things and, and, and incorrect things and so forth and then more recently Zen and the Art of Writing by Ray Bradbury and on the back it says the first thing a writer should be is excited and um, that was a nice a couple of years ago that was a nice sort of pep talk to just sort of put me back in the game and that was that that is a really good one as well but that one is is the book I would say that's the classic and and I'd, I'd never heard of it before I bought it I just saw it in the secondhand bookshop and thought oh that's what I want to become I want to become a writer that's a book for me and read it and was just blown away by it and I've so many of my author friends now have said the same thing that 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 they've all got a battered copy well thumb copy on their bookshelf somewhere from their youth <laughs> awesome I have to admit that was on my uni's reading list and I didn't read it <laughs> I did read a lot of the others I just and I had that on my list to buy I just never ended up buying it I don't know why <laughs> it's worth it's not it's not a very long book to read um and it's quite it's quite quaint and old-fashioned in a way, but it, it, there's a lot about the creative process and um, just giving you permission, really. Um, says, um, a unique and genuinely inspirational guide to creative writing. She believes there is such a thing as writer's magic, that everybody has it in different degrees and that it can be taught. This book is about freeing that unconscious ability in all of us. It might be like so many books that you read at school and university, but th- there are some books that are better saved to when you're a grown-up. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah. and so I came to that when I was 30 and that was right that was a good time for me if our listeners want to find out more about you and your books where can they go go to my website which is www.authordebbyyoung.com if you if you just google author Debbie Young you'll find me or put put uh, my name into Amazon Kindle or Amazon Books you'll find me but authordebbyyoung.com is my website and that's got my other social media connections and so forth Um, you can also if you decide to join my mailing list there my readers club you will get an ebook a free ebook as a thank you gift um, which is this is the print edition of it which you can't buy anywhere this I just use this for um, special occasions the odd, give away the odd copy but the ebook of this The Pride of Peacocks is a little Sophie Sayers story uh set in the Cotswold village and it also introduces but there's a little bit of crossover uh, towards the end it introduces um uh some bride school which is the setting for my other series as well so um if if you join the list even if you just want to join the list to get the free ebook download it and unsubscribe that's fine I just want people to discover <laughs> Sophie Sayers and love her so that's, brilliant and that's I have to admit I do love her and I love the idea of your uh reader magnet being a crossover between your two series as well I have a bit of fun with that actually because in the in the um, first two uh, St Bride stories, uh, Sophie does play a small part. She features they go the the characters go to visit the the bookshop and tea room where she works, and so they meet her and Hector. Um, and there are there are other crossovers as well. In fact, the story that I've just written for Christmas um, this last Christmas, which is only only online at the moment on Helen Pollock's website, but will be in a Christmas themed book by next year I've got quite a lot more crossover between them and in fact one of my readers said well why don't you write a mystery where they both work on the case together and I thought what fun that would be I'm not not quite sure how I'd do it um I haven't got any further with that but I thought yes thank you very much that's a very nice idea I'll put that on my list of things to write (laughs) yeah that sounds like it could be really great fun to write if you can find the right story 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some no one's thinking, well, what would have happened if Miss Marple had met Poro? <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really great fun. Oh, thank you very much, Christine. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the Writer's Mindset podcast, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a rating or review on the podcast platform of your choice or a like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. It really helps other writers find us so that we can help them achieve their writing dreams too. And don't forget, if you'd like early access to episodes and bonus content such as what most authors get wrong about email marketing, creating the perfect intro for your novel and an insight into outlining. Come and join us over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. We've got lots of big things planned and we can't do them without your support. Every little bit helps us to help you more, whether it's rating, review or becoming a patron. See you next time. Keep writing.